Welcome to Betrayal Trauma Recovery. This is Anne. I have an amazing guest on today's podcast, and I'm going to do his full bio and introduction in just a second, so stay tuned. We're going to talk about clergy sexual misconduct today. We're also going to talk about it next week. Before we get to that, if you are struggling with trying to figure out what is happening in your home and you suspect that you may be suffering from emotional abuse or psychological abuse or sexual coercion, perhaps you've found pornography on your husband's phone or computer and you're wondering what to do, Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group is the most accessible and most affordable constant support out there. We have multiple sessions a day in every single time zone. You don't have to get childcare. You don't have to go anywhere. You can go to the sessions in your car, in your driveway, for example. I wouldn't recommend it while you're driving. You can be in your closet. If your children need help, you can step out of group for a moment, help them, and go back in. We designed this for you so that you can get help within hours of discovering something or going through an emotional abuse episode and you get appropriate help. It's not someone that tells you, oh, he was just stressed out or, oh, did you make him dinner or maybe you should communicate better. Did you ask him too many questions? Women who really know what emotional abuse looks like, what psychological abuse looks like, and they can help you start making your way to safety. Some of you are experiencing criminal behavior in your homes, physical violence, perhaps you know about your husband's child pornography use or some other crime. Betrayal Trauma Recovery Group is for processing psychological abuse and emotional abuse and sexual coercion to talk about that crime and to get support reporting it. We recommend you schedule an individual session with Coach Renee. She is our crime specialist and can help you navigate your local resources. As far as the emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion go, go to our website, btr.org. Check out the group session schedule, and we'd love to see you in a session today. Okay, now to our amazing guest. Our guest today is Dave Gemmel. He is an associate director of the NAD Ministerial Association. His role at Ministerial is to discover, develop, and distribute resources for the pastors of the NAD. He also seeks to enhance the pathway into professional ministry for new pastors. In addition, he serves as a volunteer associate pastor for the New Hope Seventh-day Adventist Church in Fulton, Maryland. He received his Doctor of Ministry with an emphasis in multicultural leadership from Fuller Theological Seminar in 1992, Master of Divinity at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary in 1981, and his Bachelor of Theology from Pacific Union College in 1978. He began pastoring in the San Francisco Bay Area in 1978, continued pastoring in Maui, and served for 10 years as senior pastor of Las Vegas Mountain View Church. He transferred his service to the NAD in 2002, where he served the Adventist Television Network, Church Resource Center, and currently with the Ministerial Association. Welcome, Dave. Thank you very much, Ann. It is a delight to be with you, and I love your mission. Uh, BTR aims to protect women from emotional abuse, psychological abuse, and sexual coercion. We are on the same page. All right, Dave, let's just dive right into talking about clergy sexual misconduct. Many think clergy sexual misconduct pertains only to preying upon minors. Could you please define clergy sexual misconduct? Yeah, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Clergy sexual misconduct. 
typically we think of all the stories in the news. You know, we hear the stories of the Catholic Church with the pedophilia, abusing little boys in the church. And so that's what comes to mind when we think of clergy sexual misconduct. But actually, the scope is a lot bigger than that. But Anne, if I could just give a little preface here before we jump into it, let me just say that by far, most clergy do not engage in sexual misconduct. Most clergy are honorable spiritual leaders who provide quality spiritual direction and support for their congregations. Many, if not most, have advanced education and have been carefully screened before endorsement by their congregations. Most are highly trained, behave with great integrity and professionalism. Having said all that, there are a tiny segment of volunteers and professional clergy who violate the sacred trust and in doing so damage the reputation of all clergy. That's the segment that we're going to zoom in on today, but I just want to make sure that we realize that that, that is a very tiny minority of clergy. So what is clergy sexual misconduct? It's a betrayal of sacred trust, as I mentioned. And it can be on a continuum of sexual or gender-directed behaviors by either a lay or a clergy person with a ministerial relationship, whether they're paid or unpaid. Here's some of the things it can include. Abuse, adult sexual abuse, harassment, rape, sexual assault, sexualized verbal comments or visuals, unwelcoming touch and advances, use of sexualized materials, including pornography, stalking, sexual abuse of youth, or those without capacity, consent or misuse of the pastoral ministerial position. And it includes sometimes criminal behaviors that are against the law in some nation states and communities. So that's an official definition of sexual misconduct by clergy. That's in the Book of Discipline of the United Methodist Church, which is one of the best that is out there. So in your definition, you said gender-directed behaviors. Are you talking about misogyny there? And can you talk more about that? Yeah, that absolutely is misogyny. And that is proclaiming that women are not as valuable as men, and men have the right to dictate uh, women's behavior. For the purposes of this podcast, since our listeners are all victims of emotional and psychological abuse and sexual coercion from their husbands, who often go into clergy, in my particular faith, all of the clergy is volunteer, and none of them are highly trained. So in, <laughs> in my particular faith's case, uh, it's quite problematic in this way, but when they go into clergy, and I've heard stories of this from all faiths, frequently the clergy doesn't understand the abuse. So are you folding into this definition, and I'm guessing that you're not, when clergy reacts inappropriately or harmfully to a victim of abuse in giving her counsel about her situation? That may not be considered clergy sexual misconduct, but it certainly is unprofessional and does not fit with the sacred trust of ministry. I would call it pastoral misconduct or clergy misconduct in general. Okay. So after talking about clergy sexual misconduct, because we're going to stay on this topic for a little while, perhaps at the end we can talk about clergy misconduct in that regard a little bit later, um, as that's what so many of my listeners are dealing with. We'll leave that to the end. So let's talk about your contention that 
pastors having affairs with church members is a myth. Yeah. You know, we hear about that sometimes where a spiritual leader has had an inappropriate relationship with a member of the congregation and and we write it off as as an affair. But I don't believe it's an affair. Here's why. The word affair implies mutual consent between two adults. But there's an asymmetrical role between pastor and congregant. In other words, the pastor has spiritual authority which does not put them on the same playing field. That's why it's asymmetrical. So any sexualized relationship between a pastor and a congregant, I believe, is clergy sexual misconduct and cannot be considered mutual consent. Even if it's not physical coercion, the clergy is the one in a position of spiritual and emotional power and must be held responsible for the abuse of power. So any sexual relationship between a spiritual leader and a member is not having an affair. It is clergy sexual misconduct. Thank you for making that so clear. I had a woman on the podcast who her episode will air after this, who explained this situation with a therapist that it was kind of an emotional affair with a therapist, or she was wondering if it was at the time. And really that was therapeutic abuse in that scenario because he was abusing her during their sessions. It's the same type of thing where can you have an affair with your therapist? And the answer to that is also no, because he's in a position of power and he's also in a position of treating you. His role is to treat you for a mental illness. I think that that would fall into the same category there in terms of therapy or other professionals, right? Absolutely. And a therapist uh, should lose their license and be barred from practicing. Yes. So in terms of clergy sexual misconduct, when this happens, well-meaning people often minimize the actions of the clergy member by saying he never meant for it to happen. You also consider this a myth. Can you talk more about why people are justifying this type of abuse? Yeah. You know, I use the word myth. Again, it's on a continuum. And the first, well, that might be unintentional. It may be that a pastor falls unintentionally into a non-professional relationship. And uh, we do need to talk about the unique temptations of the clergy and the member in just a moment. But let's hold off on that for now. Those situations don't seem to fit all cases. The reality is there are some sexual predators who've managed to become clergy. And that number Although it's not large because they are sexual predators, they can make huge impacts. The biggest study was done in 2009. It's about uh, 10 years old now. It's from the Journal of Scientific Study of Religion titled Prevalence of Clergy Sexual Advances Toward Adults in Their Congregations. It was a twofold study. It was an in-depth study and it was a wide study as well. So victims of clergy sexual misconduct were studied from a wide range of religions. They were asked to tell their stories of abuse. And in almost all of these cases, the clergy offenders in a series of small acts broke down the natural defenses of the offended, took advantage of a position of spiritual power to eventually sexualize the relationship. Now, what do we call that? That's a sexual predator. 
And somehow there's a few of these sexual predators that have managed to get in among the ranks of uh, spiritual leaders. And because it's so dangerous, and, and here's why, because the victims and the families and the congregation did not seem to notice it or refuse to confront the clergy with the inappropriate attention given to the victim. So there's this special fog in a congregation that people aren't looking for that, and so they don't see it, and it makes a nice cloaking place for these very few but significantly damaged sexual predators who've cloaked their way into the ministry. Would you say this also applies to people in some type of religious authority, even if it's just volunteer, when they're not their congregants? So for example, a neighbor who thinks, oh, this man is amazing because he's a pastor. He might not be her pastor, but some religious title. In my church, we would call it like a priesthood calling place in the church where they have authority. So even if they don't belong to their same congregation, do you find that these types of predators, they use their titles for grooming others, not just people in their congregation? I think that's possible. You know, predators use whatever tools they can. And uh, spiritual power is a very strong power. And if they can use that to, to gain their ways, they'll do whatever they can to achieve their goal. Sometimes, unfortunately, I think it's an automatic way of gaining people's trust, that they just assume they're trustworthy without looking for the fruits of trust at times, because it sort of is this cloak of clergy like you talked about, that people might not be on their guard per se, because why would they be a pastor or why would they be a bishop or why would they be, you know, in some type of church leadership unless they were a good trustworthy person? So what steps can churches take to empower women in the prevention of clergy sexual misconduct? Yeah, I think women are the key here. Absolutely. A couple things. First of all, when a congregation or a group is selecting a spiritual leader, got to check references. You know, we do that in business. How much more important it is in spiritual life? Now, when I say check references, that's not just checking the resume and making the cursory calls that are on the resume, but it's calling previous congregations and talking to people in previous congregations, others that have worked uh, with them and dig and dig and dig. And if this person is a sexual predator, things will pop up. It may not be real obvious, but three or four phone calls and following some threads, it may be possible to uncover it. Now, the challenge is people don't want to report these things because, you know, for fear of liability or they're saying something wrong. And so you have to be very careful when you're asking these questions. But with enough reference checks, many times these sexual predators can be, be eliminated. And so start out with really, really good references to begin with. One other thing, and here is the power I think that women really need to bring to the table, and that is make sure that at least 50% of your search committee or your policy committees or your boards or however your church or synagogue is set up, 50% need to be women. And here's why. I believe God created man and woman and man and woman complete humanity. If you just have one gender, you only get half of the picture. And so if there's only men on these committees, you're half blind. And many times women can pick up on things that us men were clueless to. And so 
I think that it's just imperative that there is uh, 50% at least on all these committees. Does that sound wild to you? That's my goal. (laughs) I think it sounds amazing. In my particular faith, that is not even an option right now. And so I'm like, oh, that would be a miracle if that were to take place. And I would really, really appreciate that. The other thing I think that's interesting about that idea is that if someone complained, for example, like if a woman complained and said, hey, this was creepy or this happened or whatever, so many men would just be like, oh, he's just a nice guy. Don't worry about it. You're seeing things, you're overreacting, whatever. And so to have women make up 50% of that, if all of them are like, no, this really is true. He really is kind of creepy. That would make a huge difference because men seem to dismiss women's either flat out accusations about factual things that occurred or also their intuition sometimes that something isn't quite right. Hey, I'm a guy. (laughs) We don't have intuition. (laughs) It's not there. And and frankly, because most of us men have not experienced uh, those uh, advances that are unwanted. And so it's, it's something we can't relate to. And many women have. And so immediately they pick up on it. To us, it's just completely off our radar. That's why we need women in these decision making positions. Yeah, I think that's a fantastic idea. I will pray for that in my own faith and for all faiths, because that's a really good suggestion. You mentioned before coming back around to the common temptations of clergy. Let's talk about that now. What were you referring to? This is really the heart of our conversation right now. I'll bring you into the world of the pastor. And we have unique temptations. If you walk in the role of the pastor for a few moments, I have for 40 years, the role of the pastor is perceived, and you alluded to it earlier, may be attractive to a congregant because of perceived power, perhaps maybe fame, more likely spirituality, caring and implied holiness. And all of these things may have a promise to fill a void in the congregant. And for the congregant, the strong and the sensitive male she's been longing for, who listens to her pain and values her as a person and not only as a woman. So that's from the congregant's perspective. Now from the pastor's perspective, as the pastor ministers to the attracted congregant, the pastor's need for validation in ministry is increasingly fulfilled. So you can see there's this mutual satisfaction of needs. And here's where the problem is. It may be conflated with a personal attraction in both the minds of the pastor and the congregant. And so the mutual attraction can easily become sexualized. And that's the heart of the matter right here. I'm thinking of, in my faith, our leaders are called bishops. And again, they're um, volunteers. And I remember one bishop who I had a very fondness for. He was very kind, and I really appreciated him. And I think he had a fondness for me. Now, there was no sexual feelings that I felt. I don't think he did either. It was a very pure, like happy, good, Christ-like relationship that we have. But one day he emailed me. It was a business email about the a business of the congregation. And he signed it Gospel Love. And I loved that because he really just genuinely wanted to show me care and concern. But he also wanted me to know that this was coming from a Christ-like place. And so I always remember that fondly of this like 
good experience that I had with this particular church leader and appreciated that he knew where those boundaries were. To me, he didn't even need to think about the boundaries because it didn't seem like that was the situation at all. So it wasn't like he was trying to do that. It was a natural place of faith and goodness and wholesomeness. I've thought about that often. And since then, I've written that to several of my congregation members and said, gospel love. So they knew like, I want to tell you that I care and love you, but I also want you to know that this is the type of love I'm talking about. Yeah. And and I believe most lay leaders and even professional ministers would fit in that category. They are very professional. They know how to, to walk the line and don't fall into that temptation. But I did want to identify it because it is there and it does happen. And there are some things we can do to prevent that conflation. I'm going to give a couple tips here. This may sound radical, but let me say, don't go to your pastor or your bishop for therapeutic counseling. That's a no-no. And here's why. Formal training of pastors and particularly lay leaders does not equip them to engage in therapeutic counseling. Therapeutic counseling is full academic program. It's full of supervised counseling that takes thousands of hours before you become certified It takes certification by state and governing bodies. So there is tons of protection and education to be able to provide professional counseling. I believe that that it's very dangerous to go to pastors or spiritual leaders for therapeutic counseling unless they have been licensed and have gone through the coursework and have that supervised counseling experience that they need. We are going to continue this really important conversation next week. But for now, Dave, you have an awesome event coming up very soon called End It Now. Absolutely. This is an annual event now that we've had for many years, and we bring the best experts in the field from all over the country and usually bring them to a physical location. But right now, as we're recording this, we're still in the midst of COVID, so we're going to be doing it virtually this year. And the good news about that is it's free. How good is that? Free. So it's called End It Now Virtual Summit on Abuse, and it will be held in English on November 13 and in Spanish on November 14. So it's open for everybody. Some of the keynote presenters, Mary DeMuth, author of We Too, How the Church Can Respond Redemptively to Sexual Abuse Crisis. Additional topics are going to be thought leaders, including protecting children and youth, digging out of the pit of spiritual abuse, a topic presented at a previous summit, and they want to hear it again and again and again. Timing couldn't be better because we're living in perfect storm with COVID-19, and we believe that abuse is escalating in this time where there's not as much accountability. So we need this more than ever. Let me give you some links on how to register for the summit. It's called enditnownorthamerica.org. Enditnownorthamerica.org, all one word. And again, it's November 13 for English, and it's free. Just fill out that form, and they'll give you the link on how you can participate. Again, that is enditnownorthamerica.org. Go to their website today so that you can register for that. Again, stay tuned for my continued conversation with Dave Gemmel next week. Many of you are aware of my book, Trauma Mama Husband Drama. It is available on Amazon. It is a picture book for adults 
that helps people visualize this type of abuse. So if you find yourself having a hard time explaining it to other people or they're having a hard time wrapping their head around it, this book is the perfect gift as we're thinking about the holiday season coming up. Uh, because I record way in advance, I don't do a lot of matching up with holidays and other things. The other issue is that our audience is worldwide and it's interfaith and it's also interparadigm. For example, we have so many Jewish listeners or so many women who are atheists. As the holiday season approaches, I'm not going to focus on talking about Christmas per se or other specific events or holidays partially because we have a worldwide audience, but also simply because I record it way in advance and then I just post them as they get edited. Really just think of it as Anne just keeps her head down and she does her job in rain, sleet, snow, or hail. <laughs> kind of like the postal workers. I'm just gonna keep my head down regardless of it's a holiday or not and give you the information that you need. If this podcast is helpful to you, please support it. Go to our website, btr.org, scroll down to the bottom and click on support the podcast. And until next week, stay safe out there.